Hello and welcome to the FIEC podcast where you'll hear teaching and resources for church leaders to help independent churches work together to reach Britain for Christ. Assessing and understanding the medical background of COVID can help as we navigate the different views about coronavirus and the following lockdown. To help, FIEC National Director John Stevens is joined by Dr Peter Saunders, former General Surgeon and Chief Executive of the Christian Medical Fellowship and now CEO of the International Christian Medical and Dental Association. Greg Strain, pastor of Spicer Street Church in St Albans, offers a pastor's perspective on the medical side of COVID. But as we um, begin our time, I want to turn us first of all to God's word. And uh, we're going to look um, this morning at Psalm 138. Psalm 138. Let me read that psalm. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. I will bow down towards your holy temple and will praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness. For you have so exalted your solemn decree that it surpasses your fame. When I called you, you answered me. You greatly emboldened me. May all the kings of the earth praise you, Lord, when they hear what you have decreed. May they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. Though I walk in the mists of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. The Lord will vindicate me. Your love, Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. Well, I think as uh, much of the news have been, has been dominated this week about the attempts of the government to be able to save Christmas and what they think Christmas is, uh, it's reminded us that we live in a, a predominantly secular society. And as uh, evangelical believers, we find ourselves a small minority increasingly in exile. And I think in those circumstances, we need uh, real encouragement. And we find that encouragement in the book of Psalms. The last book of the Psalms, book five, uh, is really focused on providing hope for the people of Israel while they're in uh, exile. And I think this is uh, why um, uh, this Psalm, Psalm 138, uh, is uh, here. It's a reminder that God is faithful to his people. His promises uh, will be fulfilled. Psalm 138 comes after Psalm 137, which speaks about the exilic experience um, of the people of Israel in uh, Babylon. And what it does is it, is it draws on David's experience from the past, his testimony to God's faithfulness. And it's relevant to the um, exilic generation uh, precisely because the God that David speaks about has not changed. So this psalm is used to bring encouragement to God's people in the mists of exile. And I just want you to notice three things about David um, and what he says in this psalm, which I think are really relevant for us. Firstly, we see the king's commitment to praise God's name. That's really verses one to three. We see David's commitment to praise God and keep praising God. He's facing trouble. He's surrounded by foes, but yet he is determined to keep praising God. He says, I will. Uh, praise you, uh, Lord. And he praises God. And the root of this commitment to keep praising is because of God's covenant, his love and his faithfulness, uh, which David is confident will endure forever. So even in exile, David is committed. He determines that he will keep praising God. But secondly, we see the concern of uh, the king for God's glory. Um, uh, this experience of exile could easily cause you to turn inward, to be focused on yourself. But actually, David looks outward uh, with a big vision for God's mission in the world. Even in the midst of this situation, when Israel might seem small, when he seems um, afflicted by enemies, 
his concern is that the nations that are oppressing him would come to know uh, God uh, and worship him themselves. Um, uh, so his great desire is that the nations uh, would come to praise the Lord and sing of uh, his ways. Because David knows that uh, uh, the Lord God of Israel is the one true God. He is the God of great glory and all that he's created should come and worship and acknowledge his glory. Um, and I think one of the challenges for us as we face exile is to, is to turn inward. And this is a reminder to us to keep remembering God's uh, great uh, plan. And then lastly, we see that uh, uh, David has uh, David's the king's confidence in God's salvation. So in the final verses, uh, David um, uh, acknowledges the situation he finds himself in, but yet he is confident that God will save him and will uh, vindicate him because he knows that God is a God who uh, uh, looks kindly on the lowly, on uh, those who are oppressed and those who are powerless. So here is David um, speaking of his uh, a sort of uh, hope and confidence in God. And this psalm is reappropriated to bring hope and confidence to a people in exile. Uh, we've got here uh, David's hope that sustained the people in exile. Of course, ultimately, this psalm was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, uh, who was uh, raised from the dead and saved. And it provides a pattern for us. And as we face this experience of exile, I think it's important for us that we remain committed to praising God's name because of his covenant, his um, secure love and faithfulness, that we keep an outward vision of concern for his glory and that we maintain our confidence that God will save. Let's um, pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and praise you for the encouragement of these words of David, um, uh, reappropriated for people experiencing exile. We want to ask and pray that we would be those who, who commit to keep praising you because of your covenant, because we can rely totally on your love and faithfulness. We ask and pray you keep us a, a, a sort of give us a big missional vision that would long to see people um, uh, who are not yours come and worship you because of your great glory. And we thank you that we can have confidence that you will save and vindicate. Thank you that we can see that even more clearly because you raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and we have um, uh, his sure and certain promises. Please would this truth sustain us and help us uh, even in these times in which we find ourselves. Please watch over our webinar, pray particularly for Greg and for Peter, that they would be help, able to help us to navigate the challenges that we face in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to turn um, uh, from that, if I can, to just very briefly give an update on where we are on the coronavirus law and guidance in England. The government has began to publish its strategy uh, uh, sort of for the end of the national lockdown in England on the 2nd of December, um, and indeed their strategy running right up until the um, end of uh, March. There's much that remains um, unclear, uh, but there are some things um, uh, that we do now uh, know. Um, which will have implications for us as, uh, as churches. So I want to try to highlight what it is we know, um, um, highlight some of the areas of uncertainty uh, which make it difficult to plan, um, and then what the implications particularly are for churches. So what do we know? Well, we know that places of worship will open after the 2nd of December. So the current um, uh, lockdown that uh, sort of uh, closed places of worship will end. Instead, that's gonna be replaced by an augmented upgraded tier system that's gonna be not unlike the system that was in place before this national lockdown. So um, in areas that are deemed to be tier one, um, the effect will be that the rule of six will apply to gatherings indoors and outdoors. So you'll be able to gather with up to six people from different households, uh, either indoors or outdoors. Under tier two, um, you'll be able to gather uh, indoors uh, with um, a household group. 
So inside, you'll be able to meet with people from your household. And I should say a um, household of called uh, includes your household bubble. If you've linked with a, a person who's uh, single and on their own, they form part of your household. Outside, you'll still be able to meet in the rule of six. So gathering with six other people from different households. In the highest level of tier three, you'll be uh, only able to meet um, in your household group, whether inside or outdoors. Although there is an exception for meeting outside in public parks and gardens. So you won't be able to meet as a group of six inside your own garden, your private garden, but there are some public places where you'll be able to meet um, uh, as a group of six. So um, in some ways, it's slightly more generous than the previous um, uh, kind of tier system. Um, uh, although uh, the likelihood is that more areas will be put into the higher tiers this time round. Uh, special rules have been introduced for Christmas and over the Christmas period, people will be able to meet in a unique Christmas bubble, uh, which comprises of up to three households. So you'll be able to meet indoors with up to three households that you've formed a unique Christmas bubble with um, between the 23rd and 27th of December. Uh, it's worth saying um, that it's very important to recognize that, that you can only form a Christmas bubble with three households. And once you've formed your bubble, that bubble is fixed. It's not that you can meet on with three households on Christmas Day, three households on Boxing Day, three households on the 27th of December. It's a unique bubble for that whole period. And you can only meet with the three households that you agree to um, uh, sort of join a bubble with. Uh, we also know that weddings will be able to continue with uh, 15 attendees and receptions will be allowed for up to 15 in the, the two lower tiers. You'll be able to have funerals with 30 attendees in all tiers. Um, children's activities um, are allowed to go ahead, including Sunday school, provided they're conducted in a COVID secure way. Uh, we know that uh, face coverings will remain mandatory for indoor gatherings. And um, uh, the government is suggesting that this regime is likely to last until um, at the end of uh, April or maybe uh, uh, into the spring period. So this is the framework that we're expecting to be in place for um, uh, the uh, next period of time. Now, those are the things that we don't know. Yes, let me just reiterate, these particular rules are for England only um, in relation to the church gatherings um, uh, for Scotland at the moment, uh, it depends on the tier systems, uh, sort of some areas of Scotland, you can have church gatherings with a maximum of 50. In the highest tier four areas, you can have gatherings of a maximum of 20. In Wales, you can gather in churches without limit, provided you comply with COVID um, security. But the Christmas rules about gathering in unique bubbles are true for every part of the UK, not just uh, for England. Uh, what don't we know? Um, in relation to um, the UK? Well, there are some things I think that are slightly unclear yet and we'll have to wait for, for the legislation uh, uh, and the um, guidance. So for example, we don't quite know what the rules will be about outdoor gatherings. So what numbers of people could be able to gather together in total in an outdoor gathering? That might have implications, for example, for things like outdoor carol services uh, that might be taking place uh, 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 towards the Christmas period. So we don't yet know whether there'll be any specific rules about um, outdoor uh, kind of worship. Obviously, you'd have to stay in your group of six, but whether you could have a larger group of people in groups of six, we don't yet know. We don't yet know what the position is going to be on congregational singing. There have been some indications from government and from officials that the rules in relation to congregational singing are going to be revised. 
and we've been told that will appear in the um, revised guidance for places of worship. The government has issued new um, uh, guidance uh, for principles of safer singing. Um, it's not clear whether those are for choirs or for congregations, but there is a possibility that congregational singing will be allowed. Uh, it's possible that congregational singing wearing masks will be allowed indoors, provided there's significant ventilation. It's possible that singing um, outdoors uh, may be permitted. Obviously, that will have significant implications for the planning of Christmas services at this time. I can't give you any more information, um, but it has been hinted that there might be a change in relation to congregational singing. And certainly the noises we've received from the Minister of Faith and the um, government officials is they want to try to bring that about. Um, we, we will probably know at the end of this week, because it's at the end of this week that the revised guidance for places of worship is going to be published. You can find the um, government's document on principles of safer singing, which was published on Friday uh, on the government website. Now, those are the um, basic rules. What then are the implications for churches? What will this mean for our activities? A number of things um, come to mind. We're, we're really back to the system before the national lockdown, depending on which tier you're in. Um, in tiers uh, one and two, um, uh, you can, uh, you'll be able to have obviously church services, but it's also possible, of course, to have small groups and prayer meetings um, uh, that could take place on the church premises or um, uh, in a home or in uh, a garden. Um, in groups of uh, six. Uh, where you can meet and who you can meet will depend on the tier as to whether it's in the home, in the church, or whether it's outside. Certainly in tier one and uh, tier one, you can meet inside and outside uh, with a group of six from other households. In tier two, you can meet outside with a group of six from other households. It's much more limited in relation to tier three. Um, the fact that this is replacing the national lockdown means I think it's clear now that things like the delivery of leaflets, cards, advent bags, etc. can take place. Um, the rule that said you can't leave home without a reasonable excuse uh, won't be part of the arrangement after the 2nd of uh, December. So that gives greater clarity on the ability of um, churches to be able to send people out to deliver. Again, be cautious and careful of the kind of COVID risks involved in the way you do that. Um, In-person carol services will clearly be able to take place in church, provided you comply with the COVID secure um, guidelines. Again, we'll see what happens with singing. Um, I'm not sure entirely what the position will be with outdoor carol services. As I said, we're not quite clear on the rules, but I think it's entirely possible that outdoor carol services will be um, possible. This is all good news for churches as they plan for Christmas. I think um, just a caveat, um, uh, how we respond. I think a question worth thinking through is whether or not we think that unbelievers will come to church in these circumstances. So whilst it's no doubt the case that committed church members will rejoice to be able to gather together in person, um, are often we're used to people who are not regular churchgoers coming at Christmas time. And I wonder whether or not that will be the case the same way this year. Uh, not because people so much are afraid, but because they'll be prioritising family gatherings over the Christmas period and um, because uh, the restrictions of coming, wearing masks, etc., make church a less pleasant experience for those who are not committed already to coming. So maybe we need to think carefully about whether even if we are able to open, that will um, enable uh, lots of people to be able to come in who wouldn't ordinarily come to church. I think that means it's probably wise for us to think through. Um, how we continue to do online and hybrid events that reach uh, more people. 
And we covered that in some um, uh, webinars uh, prior to now. But if we want to maximize our impact with those who are not Christians and wouldn't come to church, um, I think it's important to think about making sure we give a high quality, accessible um, uh, online uh, offering as well as in-person services. And an issue I think that might be relevant with the Christmas bubbling um, is how do we care in our churches for the lonely and single who might be in church at Christmas? Those with no family, those who, for example, are international students, those perhaps converted from other religious backgrounds who have no other family to go to. We'll all have to make choices as to which three households and other people we gather with um, uh, indoors. And uh, we might as churches need to think about how we care for particularly those in our church families who wouldn't otherwise have families that they can gather with because there are limits on the number of people that we can in a sense embrace indoors under this regime. Finally, two little um, ideas I've heard from churches this week that might be of interest to you, that I think both of which I think are helpful. One was um, from an Italian church that was printing QR codes inside Christmas cards to deliver to the community. The QR codes linking to either online evangelistic videos or online services to make it incredibly easy for people to join. I thought that was a great idea. Um, another church I spoke to has been organizing a collection and putting together Christmas boxes to deliver to people in the community. Um, I just thought both of those were great ideas of churches seeking to make the most of Christmas opportunities. Um, at this time of year. I hope that's been helpful as a brief overview of where we're at in the guidance. I'm happy to take questions uh, at, at the end, um, but I really want to turn over to the, the kind of main content of this webinar, um, which is to hand over to um, uh, sort of Peter uh, and to Greg uh, as they help us to navigate the challenges of all the different uh, views about COVID. So thank you for bearing with um, all of that guidance. Peter, over to you. Thanks very much, John. It's a pleasure to be with you and to be with all of you at this at this time. Let me just uh, share my screen. Now, uh, my background, I, I'm a general surgeon. I come from New Zealand. Uh, I'm, I was for 27 years working with CMF, Christian Medical Fellowship, for the last 19 as CEO. And for two years, I've been the CEO of the International Christian Medical and Dental Association, which brings together over 80 national bodies of Christian doctors and dentists around the world. So that's where I'm coming from. I'm very much a generalist and big picture person. and I'm gonna throw a lot of stuff at you. You're welcome to have the PowerPoint afterwards. And I think the talk will be recorded as well. And there'll be time to pick up issues and question uh, in question time. So this is the uh, now familiar nanobot, the micro robot that's changed all our lives, uh, which God created for us. And this, uh, of course, it is now a worldwide pandemic, so you can see virtually every country in the world is now uh, affected to a greater or lesser extent. The daily cases, this is from this morning, uh, continue to rise, although the uh, early cases were a lot higher than is shown here. We didn't have the testing to show that. So the, by far the best indicator of how severe things are is the daily deaths, and daily deaths for the world peaked uh, yesterday at 11,719. So that's the highest number uh, ever. And in fact, last week we had prior to that the, the four highest numbers of deaths on a worldwide basis. Uh, different countries have handled it differently. And I think it's been a great tester of public policy. Some countries have done incredibly well, uh, like New Zealand, uh, with no deaths since September and only 25 in total, five deaths per million people. 
The US, we're on our third spike of daily deaths now. Uh, India was a long rise up, but it's now going down, but they're worried about a second spike and it's still very bad in some parts of the country. And this is the picture of the United Kingdom of deaths peaking over 1,000 per day back in April and May, and now on a second rise up to uh, the highest number yesterday and this one, which was just over 600 deaths in a 24 hour period. If we look at the rest of Europe, these are the, uh, are the graphs for France, Italy, and Belgium. And you'll see they're very, very similar to the UK. So places that are well linked to international travel uh, are all on their second spike. In other countries in Europe, so Poland here and Czech Republic, you can see they're virtually untouched in the first wave, but they're now seeing a second wave of deaths, which is much, much greater. And there've been others like Romania who've never really been free and are now at the worst stage they've been in terms of deaths. If we look at the figures worldwide, this is the, the 20 worst countries in terms of total deaths and the big four making up almost half of all the deaths, are USA, Brazil, India, and Mexico. But you can see in the top 20, there are eight countries I've marked green, which are in Europe. And the real measure is the deaths per million population and leading the world there is Belgium, second is Peru, but four of these pink countries in that category are in Europe. So the big message is this is uh, the, the groups that have taken the worst hit from this are the Americas and Europe, particularly Western Europe. One of the best measures of uh, how many people have had it is the seroprevalence, whether they've got antibodies in their blood and the uh, Lancet magazine has or journal has a, a sero tracker. You can go and look and I've, I can show you the figures for the United Kingdom here. There have been 89 different estimates and the, the range is from half a percent to 15 and a half percent. So I think at, at worst, 15% uh, have got antibodies, although we'll come back to that. I think the prob probable figure is about eight to 10 in, on a national average. We know that the majority of infections are mild, 80%, 20% more serious. Of those, a quarter are critical. And at the beginning of that quarter, a half died. Those most susceptible are those in the 60 age group plus. Uh, these are the percentages of the deceased in Italy and UK. But the important numbers to remember, which are not on the screen, is that if you're 80 to 89 and you get it, 15% chance you'll die. 70 to 79, 8%. 60 to 69, that's my age group, 3%. But below that, there's a rapid drop off. So this is a disease uh, that primarily affects the elderly and also those with existing conditions like heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, cancer, and particularly obesity. And of all those who die, only 1% have no associated conditions. So this is, a, this is something that carries off the old and the vulnerable primarily. Uh, men are twice as uh, at risk as women. And ethnicity is a factor, so black and uh, Indian subcontinent are the highest. And this, this, I think, is one of the most interesting graphs. This shows contagiousness, how easily you can catch a disease, versus severity, the percent who die. And I think this shows us the extraordinary mercy of God in this pandemic, because the most contagious diseases, things like measles and chickenpox, are up here but COVID's way back here, much, much harder to catch than those. 
the most dangerous bird flu in Ebola, 50% chance or more you're going to die with them. COVID is way, way down here, somewhere around 1%. And uh, just imagine if this was something that killed children. Just imagine it was something with the mortality of Ebola and the infectiousness of measles and chickenpox. And that's where I think we see the extraordinary uh, mercy of God in the limitation of this pandemic. But among uh, those who are dying of infectious diseases, uh, COVID-19, you can see, is now the top. These are figures from September, so they're even higher now, but greater than TB, hepatitis, everything else really that there is. Treatments, uh, the New York Times has a useful tracker. The bottom line is that uh, we do have treatments. <coughs> Dexamethasone, a, a cheap and available steroid, is uh, very effective in reducing mortality. We know that if we nurse people who are severely ill in a prone position, face down, they do better. Uh, oxygen support doesn't have to be ventilators. In fact, they often do better without ventilators. But what these treatment advances mean is that the fatality rate's fallen by a third since April. So when you look at 600 a day dying in Britain, you can say, well, that would have been 900 in April. And that's because of blood thinners, dexamethasone, uh, oxygen and prone positioning primarily that's made that possible. So there have been real advances. When it comes to vaccines, of course, everything has changed in the last couple of weeks, but there are well over 100 vaccine trials going on, although only 12 have reached phase three, which is large scale effectiveness trials. The first two uh, were the Moderna, well, first of all, the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine, then the Moderna vaccine, there's also Sputnik V, which is a Russian one, all over 95% or all over 90% effectiveness in, in cutting it down. And they all work in, in different ways. But the, the important thing is the Moderna and Pfizer are both messenger RNA vaccines, which is a, a real new kid on the block at the moment and can be developed very quickly indeed. Of course, the big news here is that the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccines now available. And we know that also has a 90% success rate if it is given as a, a small dose first and then a large dose later. So these are incredibly good success rates. Uh, we've just seen press releases so far. We haven't seen the peer-reviewed studies. And so there are still a lot of questions, but this is incredibly good news going forward. The, the good thing about the AstraZeneca vaccine is that it's very, very cheap only three pounds a dose relative to the other two at 15 and, and uh, 20 pound, 25 pounds respectively. And uh, it can be stored at room temperature, which means it could be a, a real uh, godsend for the developing world. But uh, there's still a lot to go through. There's no room for complacency. And there are big unanswered questions still around vaccines, which should be answered once the, uh, once the vaccination starts and once the uh, peer-reviewed studies are publish. So overall, how serious is it? Well, uh, we've been very effective in slowing the spread, but there have already been 1.4 million deaths in just nine months. Current rates, it's going to be 2 million by February next year. This national sero seroprevalence and in, in even in heavily infected countries is only less than 15%. So we may well be at the beginning of this still. Um, <clears throat> there's debate about the infection fatality proportion, what the, what the, what the percentage who die in the, in the whole general population are, but I think probably it's around 
1%, we could come back to that. We've got four vaccines now at phase three and treatments given 30% fall in mortality. Uh, how bad is it in world, world history? Well, these are, the, these are the worst plagues in world history in terms of mortality. I've highlighted the, the seven worst. You can see the number of deaths uh, they, they cause. So the worst of all, Black Death, HIV, Spanish flu, and so on. So we're nowhere near the level of these seven, but by February, it will be moving into eighth place. So it's uh, pretty, pretty serious. Uh, of course, there are huge uh, <coughs> collateral damage as well as a result of this. So our reaction to it and our attempt to control it has had effects, uh, not least on health. This was the Lancet's view that the pandemic's dismantling the foundations for protecting and advancing health because of the diversion it's created and the resources that have moved into other areas. Just some of the headlines, hunger and famine, extreme poverty, mental health problems, family breakdown, domestic abuse, stigma, and then the effect on chronic diseases. And you see in this graph here, this pink line is the, the first wave of mortality and sickness, deaths and sickness from COVID-19. But following that is the green one, the impact of resource restriction on urgent non-COVID conditions like, like cancer, for example. And then the third wave is interrupted care on chronic conditions like diabetes and high blood pressure. And then the fourth wave is mental illness. <clears throat> so huge collateral effect. I'm just going to go through these slides very quickly. Extreme poverty, you can see the numbers there. Organizations, it's thought that the number of children dying uh, could be greater from not being immunized from the disease itself is one prediction that's been made. And uh, decades of progress might be unraveled uh, by the effects of lockdown. The effect on these uh, chronic diseases, HIV, TB, and malaria, uh, expecting to see deaths from these increase by 10, 20, and 36% respectively over, over five years. And then of course, um, not we've got to remember that of the 57 million people who die each year, so put that up against COVID of 2 million uh, by February, 57 million deaths every year, that 70% of them or 40 million are killed by non-communicable diseases like heart disease, strokes, cancer, uh, respiratory infections, and so on. And this is the degree of disruption that there is for these various things. So the, the uh, collateral effects on health are quite extraordinary. Mental health, of course, this is a big issue for us in Western churches. I think 25% of 18 to 24 year olds, these are US figures have seriously considered suicide during lockdown and uh, anxiety and depressive disorders increased by three times and four times respectively. So uh, what I'm saying to you is that we are between Scylla and Charybdis, uh, Achilles sailing his boat through between the two monsters, the six headed monster of Charybdis, which, which uh, is COVID-19, a serious disease, which uh, will take people off the deck. But if he goes too far the other way, then there's the, the uh, equal and opposite terror of Charybdis, uh, sorry, Scylla, the six-headed monster, Charybdis, the whirlpool, which is the collateral effects, even the effects on health alone, not to mention other things. So let me just highlight some of the controversies. We're not going to be able to deal with these, but let me just log them for you. Uh, you can see the list on that slide, but I'll, I'll go through these. So first of all, do we protect the vulnerable or the economy? So these are the drops in the in the stock markets, 
the increase in developed countries of uh, unemployment, the majority of countries now on the brink of recession. We know, now know that our debt nationally is greater than GDP. And then global debt, of course, is at unprecedented levels in developed economies, almost a level as it was in World War II in terms of percentage of GDP. So let's not understate that. Big controversy, do you lock down or do you release? The view of the UK leaders in public health is, a, is after the initial uh, surge back in, in April, May, is a kind of nuanced approach, uh, which doesn't sound much unlike the tier system, uh, depending on the uh, situation of the virus in a particular area. So uh, this is why I think it's a great thing we've got kids back at school, for example. Is, should it be elimination or control? Well, that's a great debate, even in the medical profession. This was a head-to-head -head in the British Medical Journal between two people uh, giving, giving good arguments. And I'd say that uh, you know, doctors are divided on that. One of the big controversies, what's the in infection fatality proportion? In other words, what, what percentage of those people who get the disease will die from it? It's a matter of great controversy. We don't really know the final answer. I'd recommend Rod Jackson's uh, article here in the New Zealand Herald Professor of Epidemiology, who I think uh, explains it extremely well. But uh, you, you hear people say, well, there was a, a US air, aircraft carrier, uh, 4,000 people on board, only one died. Therefore, it's, it's not serious. But of course, the average age was 27 on that. And they're all fit, uh, young, healthy adults. So you need to look at the whole population across all age groups. And it's only really in countries like Spain, where it's gone through the population to that extent that you can get accurate figures. So beware of, of forecasts that people make. Uh, the, the great argument about is that focus protection and herd immunity, the great Barrington declaration has been very popular and had a lot of airplay on social media, uh, saying that you should basically protect the um, the vulnerable people that let it run through the population otherwise. And then the opposite view is the John Snow memorandum, which is about let's, let's control the spread and wait for vaccines and treatments. Uh, questions about the real level of immunity in the population. Uh, is seroprevalence the best test? Uh, or is there immunity that we're not measuring uh, in all of these different categories, T cells, BCGs, past infections with other coronaviruses uh, or not. Uh, the safety and ethics of the vaccines that some of these vaccines are uh, derived using a process that involves uh, cell cultures that were initially derived from two aborted fetuses back in the 1960s and 70s. That includes AstraZeneca. So, and it's a big question, of course, about equity. Is it going to be available everywhere? Because if we're not all protected, then there's a sense in which none of us are protected. We can't just protect the developed world and expect that we'll be on top of this. Now, uh, here are some of the Christian memes. You will recognize these as pastors. You may give them varying degrees of, of uh, credence. But these are certainly the things I'm hearing uh, all the time from people in the churches who are trying to make sense of this whole thing and reading things around the internet. Um, the Great Barrington Declaration, why don't we go that way? 
uh, Sweden didn't lock down and has herd immunity. Uh, these are the arguments that you're hearing. COVID mortality is no worse than the few. People would have died anyway within months if COVID hadn't killed them. Many counted as COVID deaths really died from other causes. The pandemic's already over. Vaccines are untested, dangerous and unethical. And the infection fatality proportion's been overestimated. Uh, so these are some of the memes that are going around. I, I, we can pick them up in question time. I'd have to say that I've got quite serious misgivings about all of these uh, Christian memes that we're seeing at the moment. So let me just give you my tentative conclusions at the end as a generalist who's trying to follow this debate. I think the main problem we have is that this is an incredibly complex multifactorial problem in which you need experts from every discipline working together, especially when you're trying to balance things like uh, the health damage versus the economic damage. There have been an abundance of exponential curves. I, I joke that one of the steepest is, is that of people with PhDs in epidemiology who've never been to university to study it, especially in our churches. Uh, social distancing, hand hygiene and masks are incredibly effective in slowing down the spread. There's no doubt about that. I think that's uh, the main reason why we haven't seen some of the, the wilder predictions that were given to us early on. Uh, next, test, trace and isolate is incredibly successful in those countries who've used it well. The best examples would be New Zealand, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Vietnam and the developing world. And it's been done very, very badly in my view in Western Europe and in the US. Uh, lockdown has certainly had a role at the beginning to flatten the curve when we had no idea what we were facing. Uh, and I think it has a role in emergencies. Going for herd immunity, in my view, is an unproven strategy and risks big mortality. Our treatments are uh, improving and have already reduced mortality. And we've now got three vaccines available, but it's going to take some months until they are uh, used on those who are most vulnerable. My personal view is that I would get vaccinated uh, both to protect myself being in my 60s, but particularly older people and those who are, are vulnerable. It's, uh, if, if we're not all protected, then there's a sense in which none of us are protected. So I think we're gonna come back to question and discussion later. Apologize for that quick whip through, but I'll hand back to you, John, and over to, to Greg. Thanks so much, Peter. Over to you, Greg. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, uh, Peter. Um, I've known Peter for over 20 years. Um, he went off to CMF. If he'd stayed in medicine, he would have gone on to have been a brilliant surgeon. His uh, ability to process information and situations is very impressive. And I would have gone on to be an ordinary GP. And uh, that is my function uh, in one sense now, an ordinary pastor, just to process uh, some of that things. And I think just to put before you in uh, a few moments, in just the three or four minutes, four things which I think are reasonable for pastors in the light of all this. Um, I like it in, in, in stuff in one sense, simple. I mean, I'm going to state the obvious, but I, I actually think that stating the obvious is probably what we need at this point as we continue to and navigate through all of this. It is very easy to lose perspective. All of what I'm saying is building on what Peter has said. So I'm just uh, taking it from the surgeon and putting it into um, um, GP language. Firstly, 
I think it is reasonable to take this pandemic seriously. That may not sound kind of very controversial, but I think it is reasonable to take this pandemic seriously. Uh, Peter's slides are so helpful. It is not the bubonic plague, it is not smallpox, it is not Ebola, but nor is it seasonal flu. It is more infectious and is more deadly than flu. Hard to get the exact uh, um, grasp on numbers. Medicine's not a precise science in that uh, sense, but we are dealing with a, a serious um, pandemic, which is not as bad as it could have been, but is nonetheless serious. And I think um, the evidence all points in that way. Secondly, it is reasonable to be concerned for the physical welfare of others and especially the vulnerable. Again, that doesn't sound massively controversial, but I think it is worth stating again. Churches had the potential to be super spreader events. Um, Spicer Street, where I have the privilege of serving, we have a small, well, probably inadequate building for the numbers that we have, lots of people, packed between the two morning services, unchecked. We could have lost a number of folk, particularly as we've seen from the stats, the elderly, the chronically sick. We only lost one in the end who contracted that in hospital. Um, and we would have been um, allowing people to go to a relatively unpleasant death, not the most unpleasant, uh, but one of my sons uh, works as a junior doctor and has been looking after COVID patients that are both um, peaks and it's not a pleasant way to die. Um, and we would have certainly ended up within our community with a number of people with long COVID, again, not pleasant. So I think it is just fundamentally reasonable to be concerned for the welfare of others, the physical welfare of others, and especially uh, the vulnerable. Third thing I want to say is I think it is reasonable to take Romans 13 seriously. Reasonable to take Romans 13 seriously. I know it is very easy to be skeptical about government. Uh, we have a conservative party in power. They gave us same-sex marriage less than a decade ago. North of the border, smacking has been banned, uh, which feels like a real infringement of liberty. Um, it senses a kind of liberalizing of the wrong things and banning that we think things that we think are perfectly reasonable. And now they're kind of this, you know, governments are trying to lock us down. And it's easy to feel antagonism. But we've got to remember Romans 13, where we are called upon to respect and obey. And of course, 1 Timothy 2 commands us to pray for our governments. And we are called to respect them and to obey them. And Romans 13 tells us they are placed there for our good. And in common grace, they often act for our good and for the good of society. And maybe I could just make a plea here that we might have a little bit of mercy on our government at this point. Um, and Peter again diagram has highlighted this. They are caught between a rock and a hard place. They are perfectly aware of the economic damage and the mental health issues that are raised by lockdown. And they've got the virus on the other side. They are aware of it. They have a difficult task. And I think we need to have mercy on them in our hearts and model respect uh, for them in their difficulty. I suspect we want too much from them, 
as government. I think believers, we expect them to be Christian and to be give us a special place when they don't and they aren't. Um, and I suspect the non-Christians are looking to government to solve all of their problems, a kind of functional atheism. Where do you turn? You turn to government. Um, but I think it is reasonable to allow them to try and manage and to pray for them and to respect and submit them uh, to them as we can, even if down the line over other issues, we have to consider civil disobedience. Fourthly, finally, I think it is reasonable for us all to simply, patiently and prayerfully seek to do our best before the Lord in these difficult situations. If you go to Twitter, you will be aware that there are voices coming from the right, voices coming from the left, often very loud against various positions. And we may feel uneasy in our own souls and deeply unsettled. None of us will have felt comfortable about churches being closed, but we can only weigh up the arguments and make the best decisions we can before the Lord and for our churches. He wants you to lead your church with your elders to make the best decisions you can in amongst all of the noise and then to make the most of the opportunities and to pass to the flock as the problems are exposed and they will be. I've had my moments there. I ought to stop and hand it over for Q&A. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Greg. And thank you so much, um, uh, Peter. Thank you for being willing to speak about a subject that's been controversial in the Christian community. We really value your honesty and openness and willingness to take questions. Phil, we'll take questions on this issue um, to Peter and Greg until one o'clock. And then after that, we'll come to questions just more generally. So um, I'm not sure where we're at, Phil, in relation to questions. Yeah, lots, if you've got lots. questions, direct them to Phil and um, yeah, we'll do it in those two sections. Great. Lots of questions coming in. Forgive me if I don't get to your question. Let me just caveat that straight away. I don't think we'll get through them all because there's so many of them. Uh, but there's a couple of uh, common themes, so we'll come to those ones first, if we may. And um, Peter, can I come to you first on this one? A um, couple of people asking the question, is lockdown, social distancing, mask wearing, is it worth it, i.e., uh, is actually the cure worse than the disease? We've heard this question asked a lot. I think it's important to touch on that to begin with. So is the cure worse than the disease? How would you respond to that? I, I think it's an incredibly difficult question to answer. And, and I really think this is Skiller and Charybdis. And I think when we missed the boat initially, as we did in the UK and the US, uh, you've got an almost impossible situation to, to contain. I think that this is a very serious disease, but I think that the collateral effects are very serious as well. And I'm, I'm just thankful that we, we can now, I think, see an end to it uh, coming, hopefully through combination of vaccines particularly, but also better treatments. I, I was asked to give my, my view on this, and I, and I, I really feel I'm not... I don't have the expertise in all of the areas to know, and I don't think anybody does really, because it's a balancing of harms in different disciplines. A link to that then, Peter. Um, Sweden didn't lock down. Lots has been said about Sweden. Sweden didn't lock down. They seem to have done all right without a lockdown. Um, should we have followed a, a kind of Sweden model? 
No, I, I think there's a lot of new stuff coming out about Sweden now. You've got to remember Sweden's a, a country with a small population, 10 million. Uh, the real test, which is deaths per million population, Sweden's about 580, I think. The UK's 800, so it's not far behind. It's one of the worst countries in the world uh, in terms of deaths per million. It got into the care homes there, killed a lot of people. And when you can, the real comparative is with the other Scandinavian countries, if you look at Norway, Denmark, Finland, and Iceland in particular, their death rates are much low. In the case of Norway, I think it's only a tenth that of Sweden. So Sweden is not a success story. There's also a lot of myth about Sweden's lockdown. They, they did use uh, uh, measures of social distancing. The, the uh, university students uh, and over 16s were, were all not at university and school and so on. And they're now applying much more rigorous lockdown methods now because the number of deaths and cases is rising. So I, I've, I think if you read certain material about Sweden, you can be misled into thinking it was a wonderful success story, but, uh, but you should read much more widely uh, across uh, the, the different media and, and you'll get a more, what I think is a more balanced view. Sweden is not a success story. Thanks, Peter. Uh, sticking with the lockdown theme, um, seasonal flu kills people every year. Why do we not do this for seasonal flu, which will kill thousands uh, every year? Well, um, <clears throat> initially when this came, we didn't know how serious it was. I, the, the infection pro fatality proportion for flu is about 2.2%, so it's a lot lower. It is, it is serious, but we're talking about a disease here that when you look at it across the population is, is probably five to 10 times more dangerous than flu in terms of the number of people that, that it kills. Uh, and the combination of its easy spread plus this means that we get much more a wide pandemic than we, we ever, you know, ever would with flu. So it's, as, as Greg said, it's, it's nowhere near Ebola uh, or bird flu or MERS or any of these nasty things, but it's, it's uh, much more serious than, than flu. Uh, thanks very much, Peter. Uh, just thinking uh, a bit about mask wearing. So you said mask wearing is clearly effective. There's been a bit of pushback uh, on the chat about that. Is, that. is mask wearing effective? Should more research be done into uh, whether masks are, are effective or not? Could you comment on that at all for us, Peter, please? Well, you, you've got to consider how this is spread. And we know it's spread by uh, droplet uh, infection which is reduced by masks. I mean, if you're 15 minutes within two meters and so on, you've got a higher risk of getting droplets. But we also know that it's spread by aerosols. In New Zealand, there've been some interesting cases recently. Now they, they follow every single case and every contact up in New Zealand and, and uh, wrestle them to the ground. So that's why they've been so effective. But there was a case just last week that wasn't linked uh, at all uh, with any other known case. And they, they found out by going back that these two people had simply walked down the same street several hours apart and one had caught it from the other uh, in, in that way. So it's not just droplets, but a droplet spread is definitely reduced by, by masks, but you need to change the mask regularly. I would certainly wear a mask. Uh, thanks, Peter. Can I move on to talk about vaccines, which is the other part of your of your talk that was that was really helpful? Um, first of all, uh, what ethical concerns should we have as Christians that a lot of these vaccines are being developed from what was originally uh, aborted fetal tissue? Uh, 
I think um, just before I move on to that, I think the big, really big ethical question here is about equity and availability throughout the world. And the danger is Western countries buy up all the readily available vaccines and use them for their own people. Whereas we know this is a global pandemic uh, and, and that's, it's incredibly important that they're made widely available because if we don't control it in developing countries, it's gonna come back here anyway. I think the abortion link, there are, I think five vaccines that were linked to the cell lines that were derived from two aborted fetuses back in the 1960s and 70s, <clears throat> um, that no, no vaccine contains uh, fetal DNA or RNA or, or, or any uh, fetal material, but they were simply grown on these cell lines, which are widely used in research for the testing of drugs and other vaccines. We have a number of vaccines, uh, among them varicella, which is chickenpox, hepatitis A, rubella, and the MMR vaccine, one of the polio vaccines. These were all uh, developed from uh, at some stage by the same kind of, of cells. So we need to be aware that we're talking about two fetuses in the 1960s and 70s. There's no fresh abortion uh, generating these and, and they're using cell lines which were derived from those in order to, to grow them and develop them. Now, I know that will cause a uh, ethical problems and quandaries for a lot of Christians. And I think that conscience is incredibly important and people shouldn't take something <coughs> that they have ethical difficulties about. For me, the moral questions are around the degree of complicity, collaboration, means to an end those kind of questions. And I think that um, when, on the one hand, we need to say abortion is wrong, uh, taking innocent human life, uh, complicity or collaboration abortion is wrong. Uh, abortion is a means to an end to create cell lines is wrong. Uh, I'd be very clear about all, the, all of those things. The question is, what do you do with a, a cell line that's three or four decades old when there's no collaboration, complicity, involvement, uh, approbation of it, uh, can you use those cells in order to, uh, to, to create something that's gonna to help to save lives? Is this a Genesis 50, 20 situation where man intended it for evil, but, but it could be used for, for good ultimately? And I, th I think that's the moral question. Christians will disagree on that. My, my own view on that uh, would be, whereas I'm uh, entirely opposed to abortion, I, I think if there's nothing other of, uh, else available and there is an effective vaccine that's been produced in this way, I, I wouldn't personally see a problem uh, with using it, but I, I realize that others may disagree with that. So on the back of that, Peter, why not just vaccinate the vulnerable? Why does everybody need to have it? If we vaccinate the vulnerable, would, would we not protect them? And even if it makes its way through the rest of the population, actually, there's a much, much lower fatality rate amongst the non-vulnerable and younger. Well, that's a great question. Big debate in India uh, with limited vaccines going to be available is who should they vaccinate first? And, and they've come up with very clear criteria and the British government is doing the same thing. They're saying first it's going to be you know, people in care homes, health carers, then the 80s and the 70s, those with associated conditions and so on. And I think we, we have to do it this way given that we'll have limited availability of vaccines initially. I think 
20 million doses this year. But by the end of next year, combining the three Western vaccines that we've got, we're going to have close to 5 billion doses. And so it'll be possible to vaccinate people uh, across populations. The reason you vaccinate those who won't be as badly affected is because uh, potentially otherwise they will become carriers and pass on the disease. And, and this is the whole idea of herd immunity with vaccination. You, you need, depending on the disease, somewhere between 70 and 90% of people who are vaccinated in order to create the herd immunity that will stop the spread. And when you drop below that level, you get breakout cases. And we've seen this recently with measles and the big outbreak in the Pacific Islands in the last few years where, where many hundreds of children died unnecessarily because people weren't vaccinated. So vaccination to be effective has to be pretty much across the community, but um, particularly the high risk people, they should be the first priority, definitely. I won't be lining up for vaccination for some time uh, in, until those who really need it first have had it. Thanks, Peter. There's a two-part question here, which, Peter, I wonder if you could comment first, then perhaps, Greg, you could comment on, on the back of that pastorally. Uh, Peter, what do you think of the conspiracy theory that says RNA vaccines will alter people's DNA? Uh, and then linked to that, Greg, how do we deal with people in our churches who are embracing conspiracy theories, clearly believing wrong science? Uh, those perhaps, uh, one person on the chat says, even on their staff team, uh, who is believing conspiracy theories and trying to bring them into the life of the church? How can we pastorally deal with that? So it's so really the part one for you, Peter, and then part two for you, Greg. Thank you. Well, uh, messenger RNA vaccines uh, and both Moderna and Pfizer are in this category are the new kids on the block. They've never been used before, but they have been through phase three trials and there's, there's minimal safety concerns about them. And the way they work is that the, the, the mRNA codes for uh, a gene for a, a protein and, and they enter the cell. They, uh, the cell then produces copies of the spike protein from coronavirus, which can't cause disease and spreads those throughout the body. And then the natural immune forces of the body, the T cells and the, and the B cells, which produce antibodies, uh, get into action and therefore recognize that when the real thing comes along, they're not incorporated into uh, our own DNA. They won't change it in, uh, in any way uh, that they're simply just being using the machinery of the cell to reproduce in order to create a dummy run for the, for the immune system to be ready for. Um, comments for what they're worth. I think um, having one, worked for the NHS, the thought that there was some massive conspiracy being organized with stuff being injected into us, which had been cleverly or, you know, doctored in some way, um, I think is, 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 is close to beyond belief. It's it, the sort of scale of the thing that's being suggested. So I, I just think you've got to go to, to, to evidence on those things. And I think at a, at a senior level where you've got staff involved, I wonder whether it doesn't just fall into endless genealogies chat. You know, this is just stirring stuff up that is really unhelpful. Um, and so I think um, conspiracy theorists, people are free to, free, to, free to share them, but you certainly do not want them being spread around and kind of stirred up is where, is where I go. So I'd be, I'd be worried about a staff member trying, trying to do that. I hope that's of some help. 
And final one, Greg, we've just hit one o'clock, but I will just ask you this one, if I may, because a couple of people asking this question as well from a sort of pastoral perspective. And how do we disciple, help, even correct those in our congregations who are publicly flouting the law and decided that it's not for them? They don't believe in it. Perhaps they're flouting it through their business. Perhaps they're flouting it through the way they're arriving at church, perhaps with a refusal to wear masks or engage with that, essentially deciding the government's lost the plot. We're not following them anymore. We're doing our own thing. Uh, how, how, do we, how do we help um, folk in our churches with that particular uh, level of, of, of compliance and, and law keeping? Yeah, thank you. My best shot at that is it depends on who they are. If you have an elder who's doing that, you are you've got something that is modeling something really, really poor amongst you. You know, you need to have an open talk about that at a leadership level. If you've got a, a young believer, um, I think you need to, to, to have an open conversation um, about that. So I think it depends on it depends on who it is, the, the, the approach you're going to take and then then ha have the conversation. Um, is, is how I'd recommend that. Thanks, Greg. There's other questions, Greg and Peter, but I think we, we, we're past one o'clock now, so I think we should uh, leave those out. I think we've covered the main ones there, the main sort of groups of topics that people were, were asking. Thank you. John. Well, Phil, are we on to other questions, the more general uh, kind of lockdown questions? I said we'd carry on with those. If people need to leave, you can. We're still recording this so you can come back to it. But I think we said we'd take a slot of time just to answer any of those more general questions if there are things that it would be helpful for people to um, uh, hear. So, yeah. Phil, um, have we got, is there a set of other questions? Yeah, or? Both, there are a few come in, John, so we'll just run through those. Um, John, you mentioned the rule of six coming back in for the tier system uh, when we come out of lockdown in England on the 2nd of December. Um, can you clarify about wearing a face mask? Are they mandatory for Bible studies, say, of up to six that take place in a church building? Is that, is that going to be how that will be enforced? Yes, because you're using the church building and the obligation to wear a face covering as it was beforehand is mandatory in the place of worship because it's an indoor public space. Great, thank you. That's clear. Um, in terms of tier three, it's a really interesting question come in. In tier three, cinemas will be asked to close, but places of worship will be able to remain open. One of uh, the folk in, in the meeting today, uh, their church meets in a cinema. What are the implications likely to be? Do you think they'll be able to meet in a cinema as a church? Can you give any thoughts on how that might cash out? Um, I think it will be a question for the cinema itself to make the judgment about that. But in principle, the place that you're meeting and if you're using it for worship is treated as a place of worship. So the way that the law has been constructed up until now, I haven't seen the latest guidance, has basically defined a place of worship as any space in which worship takes place in order to cover the fact that religious groups do hire other premises. So it ought to be the case that the cinema is available to use as a place of worship by the church. Um, having said that, it will, of course, be a matter of the contractual arrangements with the cinema itself as to whether they allow a church to continue to meet in those circumstances. But in principle, I think it ought still potentially be possible for a church to meet in a space, in a theatre, a cinema, a school, um, because it's meeting for the purpose of public worship. A couple of questions, John, related to the rule of six. Um, let me start with this one. Um, in the lockdown that we're currently in, under fives didn't count towards people meeting in twos to go out for a walk recreation, for example. So my wife could take our one year old out and meet another mum with an, an under five. Um, are, are, they good, are they gonna count again when we get back to the rule of six in the way they did pre-lockdown? Um, and if so, any thought they might relax that given what's happened um, in this recent time? 
I haven't seen any particular comment on exactly what the government is going to do there. My presumption is we will go back to what the position was under the tier system prior to this lockdown. Um, the desire is to go back to that tier system, but to make the particular individual tiers tightened up. I would very much expect for the purposes of the rule of six, that the law will count children within those rules. So as before the lockdown, um, the whole question of you know, six people in a dwelling house is the maximum number that are allowed and the children are to be counted in that. I would be very surprised if that is changed or relaxed. Obviously it will be different during the Christmas period with the special dispensation for the three households to be able to gather together. And there are special rules for children between parents who are separated to take account of all those kinds of complexities. But I think basically for the rule of six, children will be included within the count um, uh, after uh, this particular lockdown ends. We'll keep you updated on that as soon as we have clearer information, but I would plan on that basis. Again, linked to the rule of six, John, uh, a lot was made of mingling before the lockdown in England. Uh, is mingling still likely to be uh, in existence when we get back to the kind of rule of six in the tiers? Absolutely, that is the key element of all of the social distancing restrictions. The whole idea is you do not have any social interaction with people other than in the group that you are in. So mingling is simply saying you remain only within your group of six and you do not engage with others outside of it. Or in the case of tier two inside church or tier three, you remain solely within your household group. So again, the picture is imagine your church service, your church carol service, People come in their groups of six or their household group. The idea is that they do not sit with, talk with, engage with any other groups, cross group within the church gathering. That's the whole point of the group of six and the rules about mingling. The idea is the only people you have social interaction with are the group that you are allowed to come with. So um, yeah, mingling and the whole idea of not mixing between groups is fundamental to the whole tier strategy and the way the rule of six operates and the household group rule operates. That isn't gonna change. That's what's gonna prevent the spread of the virus. Um, uh, that's the very reason why groups like churches are allowed to have more than six people gather together in their premises. It's on the understanding that each group remains discreet from the other groups. And I think that one of the challenges is um, obviously, we've been arguing with government that churches should be allowed to open because of how churches have fully implemented the guidance. The more that stories come out of churches choosing not to implement the guidance, the more reason there is for government to say churches cannot be trusted and therefore they become dangerous spaces. That's one of the reasons why hospitality venues can't open in the same way because government knows that hospitality venues, it's difficult to enforce those rules and therefore COVID is more likely to be um, observed. So if churches want to continue to enjoy the freedom that they've got, it's important that we observe those rules so that we don't become spaces that are COVID dangerous. I think Northern Ireland is salutary there. In Northern Ireland, up until now, churches have not been closed at all. But there were reports in Northern Ireland of a free Presbyterian church where there was a big outbreak of COVID. Um, people were not observing the rules. They weren't um, wearing face coverings. They weren't social distancing. They were mingling. The response of the Northern Irish government has been to close churches for two weeks. Now, I think that is inevitably the kind of outcome if churches fail to observe the rules and there are then breakouts of COVID. Um, uh, so I think Mingling between groups is the key element of the social distancing regime. And if churches are seen not to observe that with the consequence of infection, 
it, it wouldn't be surprising if government responds. John, a couple of quick fire questions as we come towards a close. Um, first of all, can a small team meet in a church building to record a school assembly, for example, in the way that they have perhaps been coming together in the current lockdown uh, to do that? Would that be the case after the 2nd of December? Uh, well, of course, you can already have a small team gathering to record a broadcast service. Um, quite whether a school assembly would be a broadcast service, I'm not quite so sure, but you might might be able to say that's a broadcast service for the school. Actually, I was really encouraged to read of a church that's been videoing messages for school assemblies and providing them to schools. And it's a wonderfully encouraging way of serving the local community that you might want to copy. Um, of course, after the second, it will be fine, provided you comply with the social distancing rules. So um, uh, church buildings will be able to be used for those kinds of purposes uh, once they're open and this lockdown has ended. Uh, similarly, another one about uh, moving from the lockdown back to the tier system. Will visits to over 70s still be allowed, pastoral visits, as they have been in this current lockdown once we go to the tier system, John? Um, I see no reason why not. I didn't include that in the um, uh, sort of the overall framework, but actually the other things that have been allowed, for example, visiting to provide help for the care and care for the vulnerable, support groups for up to 15 if you've got people struggling with addictions or particular life stage issues. I would imagine that those will continue to be allowed. They've been permitted throughout the entire framework, so it's very unlikely that those would not be permitted. They're, they're, they're permitted even during this current lockdown. It's not as if they're going to be removed when we move to um, the tier system. Uh, one last question, John. This is uh, more for you uh, personally in your role at Christchurch Harborough. So evidently, a um, uh, gentleman in the chat is keen to embrace a new venue for church uh, on a Sunday and asking the question, how uh, Christchurch Harborough found it embracing a new kind of rented venue? Because obviously we don't have okay. our own building. What have been the pros and cons, John? Um, well, I mean, for us, we had a school um, that wasn't available to us, so we've not been able to meet every week. We wonderfully were provided with the opportunity to meet in the hall of a local um, congregational church. Um, in actual fact, the space that we're meeting in and that has been opened up to us has been better for us, I think, than the space that we had in the school. The, the church has been incredibly accommodating. They even gave us the keys a couple of weeks ago to enable us to come and go and use it. The space was great. Um, uh, the Wi-Fi is not as good, which kind of slightly restricts our live streaming ability from it. In actual fact, it's a much more prominent central place within the town. And we were thrilled because at one level, um, uh, it, it gives us a central location. Uh, we were already thinking, would we want to move to somewhere like that already? So for us, it was a wonderful provision that might be a step to what we might want to do um, in the future. Um, obviously, in moving to another venue, there's a lot of work to be involved in kind of understanding how the venue space can be used, what it will mean for it to be COVID secure. You've obviously got to comply with all of the requirements of those who own the venue uh, to satisfy them. But we found it a very positive experience. John, let's have a bonus final question, which uh, Peter and Greg may want to chip in on as well. Uh, do you think we should still discourage the vulnerable from attending church services until the vaccine is rolled out? Any thoughts on that, brothers? Peter and Greg, do you want to kick off on that first of all? Um, go on, Peter. Oh, well, I, I just say, given the current situation with three vaccines at stage three to be available probably before Christmas, I think it would be a tragedy if having been effectively uh, curbed for nine months that w we uh, let all the controls off and didn't wait for another two or three or so uh, till Easter and, and risked people being exposed. It, it, it would be almost like someone uh, you know, losing their life at the end of the war when peace had been announced. So, uh, so that would be 
my my caution is you know why not why not just wait for a few more months until you've been vaccinated given that we've got this far uh, already this is still serious and we're not out of it until we've got the vaccine widely widely spread but obviously it's up to people to make their own decisions on the basis of their own balancing of the of the risks i agree with that uh, particularly that last bit peter um just allowing folks to make their own decisions informed decisions uh, on that i think is, is is key in all this and giving them giving them permission either way um, I think it's worth saying that in all of the stuff the government is producing in relation to Christmas, although permission has been granted for households to be able to gather together, it's actually coupled with immense caution and concern for those who are particularly vulnerable, because there is still a significant risk uh, to them, and I think we need to be mindful of that. Um, I, I, I've been slightly disturbed by what feels like a callousness in some of the Christian discussion of risk. And, and the vulnerable. Um, uh, the assumption that the risk is small and therefore why shouldn't people be bold and just take the risk and yes some vulnerable people may die but actually it'll be a very small number. I think the problem with risk and how you assess risk is the risk may be small but the impact to an individual is very great. So we're talking about somebody losing their life, potentially long COVID. We're talking about somebody losing a mother, a grandmother. Um, uh, sort of, I, I think that when we think about risk, individuals naturally are very fearful of the implication. And even if the risk is small, the impact could be massive. And I, I think that requires some measure of, of kind of caution in the way that we think about risk. Obviously, people can choose to take their own risks, um, but I think we shouldn't be callous about the, the, the genuine risk that there is to people and, and that we encourage people to make their own judgment in the light of reality. We certainly don't, um, I think, judge those who want to adopt a, a precautionary approach because they don't want to take that risk for themselves individually. Thanks, John. That's all the questions I think we're going to get through and uh, I want to have a sandwich. So let's uh, pull stamps. Fantastic. Thank you. Can I say thank you so much to all of you for joining this webinar. A huge thank you to Greg and for Peter for being willing to help us. Please do use this webinar more widely in your church. Join us next week, please, as we think about how as churches we provide for uh, women's ministry in our churches in this time uh, and looking on, we've already heard about many of the mental health crises issues. There are many issues affecting women in churches that we as church leaders need to make sure that we take responsibility for. Uh, let's uh, pray. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for all we've heard. Please would you equip us to be good church leaders as we navigate ourselves through the challenges of this time with so much uncertainty, so many different messages that we receive. Give us wise judgment. Give us uh, the ability to lead our churches um, uh, and to maintain unity. Give us wisdom to deal with those who have uh, strong views uh, that are perhaps unhelpful for the church as a whole. We do want to ask and pray for our government, for uh, medical leaders, for scientists. Uh, thank you for what they're doing to seek to meet the challenge of this virus. We want to ask and pray that you would give them wisdom and that they would make decisions that genuinely are in the common good. We think of the problem worldwide. Lord, we're conscious of the immense privileges we have in our country, access to high quality free health care, and we think of uh, populations around the world and brothers and sisters for whom that is uh, not at all the reality. Please, Father, would you be merciful to them? Please, Father, would the world community and the worldwide church know how to particularly care for brothers and sisters who don't have any of the advantages that we might have? 
Thank you for this time together. Thank you that you are the sovereign God who is in control. Thank you that we can see so many mercies that you've showed towards us. Please particularly be with us as we help lead our churches to plan for Christmas in the light of all these changing um, regulations. May we um, uh, be able to build up your people and reach out effectively with the good news of the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the FIC podcast. For more resources for church leaders, subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app and visit our website at fiec.org.uk.